Welcome to Growth Chat, a podcast series where we interview economists and social scientists asking about their most recent research papers and publications. The aim of this podcast is to share the invaluable work that economists, sociologists, anthropologists and historians do, making accessible to the general public and students, independently from their background and preparation. I'm your host, Marco Lecci, PhD student in Economic at Monash University, and with me, directing the interview, is Sasha Baker, Professor in Economics at Monash and Warwick University. Enjoy the interview. Today we are very happy to have uh, David Tiki at the Cross Chat from the Marche Technical University in Ancona, Italy. Um, David got his PhD in 2004 at uh, the University Pompeo Fapa in Barcelona and he and I met first time, I guess, a decade ago, um, but I don't remember exactly. And um, we will be talking about David's paper that's called Forbidden Fruits, The Political Economy of Science, Religion and Growth, and that paper is forthcoming in the Review of Economic Studies. And given the topic of religion, science, and growth, uh, today Marco picked a different background, which shows the Vatican in Italy. So, Davide, uh, welcome. We are happy that you are here. Thank you, Sasha. Thank you, Marco, for inviting us. I'm very happy yeah. to be here with you. Wonderful. So your paper is motivated by history, by long-run processes of how the state, the church, and the population interact, and maybe you could tell us why you think that science and religion have to do with growth. Yes. Well, I think that uh, you basically want to go to the, uh, to the question of why economists should care about studying religion. I mean, this is the essence. And when you go to answer to this question, I mean, that seems uh, that many people sometimes ask, especially outside the profession. Well, the answer is easy. Religion is a set of beliefs of individuals that affect uh, our behavior, I mean, our choices. So, for example, uh, this kind of belief af affect our consumption choices, uh, affect uh, uh, the, the way we decide uh, about uh, uh, our private life and about eventually our fertility. They can affect uh, our education choices. They affect uh, uh, whether we, uh, how we interact with the other, do we trust others or not. I mean, they affect economic outcomes. They affect many economic outcomes. And uh, the point is, as at that point, this answer the question is why an economist want to study the effect of religion on economic variables. And the economic uh, variable, the economic issue that we care most is economic growth. Because uh, if you have, when we talk about economic growth, we talk about income per capita of individuals that grow, that grow so even though in the last year we had a big, um, a big shock to our incomes, well, the fact that our income has grown so much over the last decades allows, allows us to say that our uh, uh, standard of living has not changed very much. So growth is the most in, important thing, I think, in economics. And therefore, 
uh, we want to understand what, how religion affects economic growth. Now, when we go to economic growth, economic growth as economists we know is determined by innovation. I mean, uh, we, I income grow if we are more productive, if we produce more, uh, each individual every year produces more, and this is, comes from innovations that can be innovations of product or new product, for example, here we could cite, uh, given the, the time where we are, the, the, a new product, which is the vaccine for COVID. So at the end, uh, we grow if we innovate. But it's not only about innovation, it's about also adopting innovation. And of course, science is necessary to have innovations. And of course, it's not, innovation is a broad, uh, is a broad issue. is not only innovation of product uh, or innovation uh, of new technology to produce things, but it's also innovation about how we organize our society, for example. Um, so at the end, innovation is key. And religion may affect science and innovation. So this is the reason why we are studying uh, this link between science and innovation. That's fascinating. Um, I read the paper and I imagine there was a lot of work behind on trying to understand and out, uh, trying to connect innovation and religion. I know that you guys created this model. Is there any chance you can explain us, like in very simple words, how the model worked and how did you use it? Okay, I'll try at least. I mean, uh, let's look at the ingredients. The ingredient is that we build a model where there are, I mean, there is a society by four groups. People differ by the level of income and their beliefs, let's say religious beliefs. So they can be rich and poor or, uh, and, or they can be religious or, or secular. Not religious. So we have four groups. We have religious rich, religious poor, um, and uh, we have secular rich and secular. So we have four groups, and these four groups they have to elect some their representative. They have to, to elect a government, and the government decides uh, taxes and how to uh, employ the public revenue, the government revenue. The government can provide some simple redistribution, so money to good people, or they can, the government may provide what we call a religious public, namely a public good that is liked by religious people. One can think to tax exemption or subsidies to the religious authorities, but I mean, we have an extension of the model where we show that one can think also to uh, some regulations and laws that are more in line with the religious beliefs. Things, all the story about uh, uh, abortion laws, about uh, the uh, eventually uh, stem cells or things like this. So think about this religious public good that's something that provides utility that those that are religious but uh, not mm, people who are not religious. So this is, I mean, the first thing, uh, the first ingredient. The second ingredient is that uh, there are innovations. Innovations that comes uh, 
during the time. And these innovations can be, let's say, of two types. Uh, one type of innovation is, let's say, belief neutral, has no effect on uh, religious beliefs. One type of innovation can instead erode innovation. Can erode innovation because, for example, uh, sorry, belief eroding innovation can erode religious belief. And this erosion of a religion of a religious belief uh, may is due to the fact that this kind of scientific innovations or are not, let's say, are in contrast with mm, the precept of the church of the religious authority. So uh, the government have to decide whether to allow such kind of innovations or to block this kind of innovation. Uh, at the same time, we have another actor, which is, we call it the church, but uh, it's religious authority. We don't, is nothing in our uh, paper related to a specific religion. So our paper is about religiosity, the level of religiosity. So we call it church, explain is, let's say a religious authority, whatever uh, is this authority. And this authority has the capacity of, uh, we call it repairing the belief namely to uh, reinterpret the, uh, let's say, the religious uh, precept uh, to, uh, in a way to make it consistent with, uh, uh, with the, this scientific uh, innovation or um, new innovation that we have. But this is costly, so it has to decide whether to do it or not. Then what, then what happens? It happens that uh, for intermediate level of religiosity, it is optimal for the religious authority to make this repairing. But this is not optimal when religiosity in the population is very high or very low. When it's very low, it's simple. People don't care about religion, so they just say, why should I make an effort to change my, uh, let's say, my... Uh, my, my precept and things like this. When religiosity is very high, then it's very costly because you have very religious people, you have taught them certain things, they are more, let's say, rigid, so it's costly to change it. For intermediate level, instead, this might be optimal. And this is the first ingredient. So repairing happens for intermediate level of religiosity in our mind. Then the, the, the government has to decide whether to block or not the innovation. And it turns out that blocking, of course, for the government is costly because, uh, and the cost is that you uh, forego the benefit of innovation, which is higher income. So every government whoever it represents, rich or poor, doesn't like blocking, okay? But at the same time, it has also to consider uh, the effect it has in the future. So if you let an innovation, of course, innovation that are belief neutral are always implemented, but those innovations that affect the religious beliefs, then, uh, of course, if you, you allow them, then you change their level of religiosity in the society, and then 
when you go to the next election, you say, then new groups of coalition can emerge. So the problem for the government is uh, if I allow the innovation, belief changes, and then uh, other groups may step in, may win the next election. And for this reason, sometimes government blocks. And uh, what we obtain that is the blocking in our model take place for, let's say, relatively high levels of religiosity, especially at low level of uh, development. Okay. And then um, in your paper, you describe three types of regimes that you observe in the world and that you label. Maybe you could give us a pitch yes. of that aspect. I mean, we uh, obtain that we can summarize in three times of, um, of regime. I mean, one of this regime is the, what we call the European regime, uh, the Europe. Europe is uh, uh, a regime where the level of religiosity is low and therefore um, uh, what we get is that uh, um, here there is no blocking but at the same time, there is also, I mean, innovation, every type of innovation is implemented. Religiosity is low, is, is Europe, okay? So no blocking, no, uh, given that because religiosity is low, but given that religiosity is low, there is also no repair. Okay? This is Europe. Then there is intermediate level of religiosity where, uh, that we call the American regime. We call it the American regime because U.S. has a higher level of religiosity relative to, to Europe, but still, in the U.S., uh, you have an innovative campus. And uh, uh, somehow this, uh, avoiding, let's say, blocking, we will come back to this, but let's say you can avoid blocking because the religious authorities, the church, uh, made the effort of making innovation and uh, and uh, uh, religion compatible. They, let's say, repair the damages of new innovation. So there is an active uh, process by the, the church, by the religious authority to make this compatible. Then there is a high level of religiosity that we call the theocratic regime. And this theocratic regime is the one that characterizes part of, um, let's say, the Arab world, um, Muslim countries, where religiosity is very high and where religious authority are very powerful and then innovations is substantially blocked when it is against the, uh, the, the precept, uh, the, the ideas, the, uh, the beliefs of the, of the religious. Okay, these are the three regimes. In the, and basically, this leads uh, also to uh, a negative relationship between innovation and religiosity, because you have that at middle, intermediate levels, you don't block innovation, but when you have very high levels of innovations, then uh, religious, in, religious leaders may be tempted to block those innovations that may change religious beliefs. 
I'm actually surprised to hear that uh, United States is more religious than Europe. Coming from Italy, it's just, you know, <laughs> we're surrounded by churches and stuff. Um, I, how did you collect the data? What sort of data did you use? Uh, because you, you're putting together uh, religion, innovations, and like different continents. So what sort of data did you collect here? A first set of data is an international cross-country. So we have used uh, uh, two sources of mainly two sources, I mean, many sources of data. I mean, it was, I mean, technically is a simple, uh, is a simple, was a simple work technically, but combining was very time consuming. The first is the World Value Survey integrated by the European Value Survey. This was useful to get the religiosity data. I mean, the survey goes from 1980 to 2010. There are six waves of the World Value Survey and four for the European Value Study. And uh, we get five measures of religiosity, whether people is the share of, for each country, are the share of individuals that uh, define themselves as a religious person, uh, those that believe in God, uh, those that go to church at least once in a week, um, those that think that religion is important or that God is very important, okay? So this is the five major uh, shares in the population. Then our variable of interest is innovation, and one measure of innovation is patents by residents, patents per capita. So we have taken from WIPO the the number of patents uh, by residents standardized with the population, and this is our variable that we look at. Of course, then there are a number of controls at country levels to make sure that uh, uh, we control for the level of GDP, for population, for um, many other variables, and we get this negative uh, a relationship at, let's say, the world level, okay, for various countries in the world. One can say, look, these countries are different and uh, you can uh, not control for all the variables that affect innovations and religiosity. So we found some data for the United States. I mean, it was a survey in 2007 asking, uh, for in the uh, um, 51 states, uh, some variables about religiosity, basically very similar to those that I already cited. And uh, in these states, we have the number of patterns. So we replicated the same thing and found this, that the negative relationship between innovation and religiosity was also at um, uh, US level also inside the United States, which uh, somehow tells us that this is, more, this is more convincing. And if I can say one more, I take the opportunity to advertise another paper, sure. which is very related to this one. It is a byproduct of this paper. We published in the American Economic Review, the papers on proceedings of 2015, and the title is Religion and Innovation. And was um, uh, that paper take a different perspective and say, look, religiosity um, of people um, 
does not, may not be important for innovation only because it goes in the political system, but also because uh, affect the individual attitudes toward innovation, okay? So we took, given that the data of the World Survey are at the individual level, we took uh, this data, I mean, we considered these variables of religiosity, and we looked to some, uh, to some other characteristics of the individuals. For example, I mean, there were 11 characteristics of attitude towards innovations and that we divided in three categories three categories, attitude towards science and technologies, attitude towards new ideas, change and risk uh, taken, and what child qualities, what is important for you that your child has. So what we got at the individual level for uh, these countries around the world was, again, people that are, are more religious uh, have um, less favorable view towards innovation. So another potential channel through which uh, religiosity affects innovation is the attitudes of individuals uh, towards innovation. Wonderful. Your, your main paper is, is pretty long, more than 100 pages in the version I saw. Um, and it's a lot theory focused. So you have an elaborate model that you described so beautifully um, of how the political process lets these different institutions interact. But then your empirical findings, both in that big paper and in your spin-off is that those predictions are born out in the data, that indeed there is this link that you, uh, that is a key ingredient in your model. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Thank wow. you. <laughs> The paper is very long, I mean, uh, and uh, is around for, for from a long time. It was a project that we started in 2008, okay? And, wow. uh, yeah, it started from 2008, and uh, basically it was presented in the first form in 2009 at the MBR Summer Institute. But then, I mean, we realized that the idea was good, but we wanted to do something really, you know, as I described the model, you have many actors, you know, and uh, combining all the things with the rigorous theory, that was, was difficult. And also when we presented, then people ask, ah, you know, the religious public good is, uh, I don't believe is much important, it's more about laws. Then you make an extension about laws. And, you know, this explains why you find all these extensions. I mean, it was... So you are now talking also time. a bit about uh, the production process, how research is done. So what kept you motivated in these 12 years that you were working on this one big thing? Well, let's say that at the beginning, the motivation was that... Uh, uh, we realized we had a very good idea. We thought it was good. And the reaction when we, talked, we presented uh, uh, the paper was very good. So we realized that the paper was innovative. Right? It's not often that you get uh, ideas that innovate very much. So we thought to have 
uh, an important idea. And we wanted to, uh, to do um, a paper, do a model to explain this kind of things in a rigorous manner and uh, obtaining also um, predictions or results that make sense. So, and technically speaking, even though you don't, maybe they are hiding in the appendix, there are very challenging stuff in solving, for example, um, um, the solution of a political process with four groups that have to decide about three policy variables and those kinds of things, that gets very complicated. So the motivation at the beginning was, was this, and um, then at the end, the motivation was, uh, well, we have all this work done, okay? The paper is successful, somehow at least what we, we got very, so we have to publish well. And to, Let's to push it a little bit more to get like, yeah. A, this, yeah. Is, um, uh, this is the reason. I mean. um, so you're not an economic historian, are you? Like you just started, no, like, no. Do, how do you classify yourself? Uh, well, uh, I would like to classify as an economist. <laughs> General <laughs> label. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, tell us about a little bit of your story. Like what, what brought you to, to um, uh, do research in this topic, uh, choose this topic and in this field? Well, I, I would start why I become an economist. I mean, That's so, a good question, actually. I mean, that, I, mean I think that this is, uh, if I start from that, then you understand. I mean, because I went to the university, I mean, I did a high school, a technical school. So I was supposed to be an engineer, okay? So I, a mechanical engineer. But then I didn't like to go in a firm eight hours a day, I mean, uh, I, I, I like to study, okay? So I decided to go in the, uh, to do economics, but, but not economic, business. I like business and maybe I said, well, maybe then I have the option, I thought in terms of option values of becoming a professor, but maybe having a, a, a firm, a studio or I mean, something like I mean, it was uh, the, the, the concept of studying and freedom, but business. So studying first year, doing, you know, accounting, private law and those things. And uh, at the end of the first year, there was this exam, microeconomics, okay? So couldn't understand well what microeconomics <laughs> was. So you start opening this book. And uh, so there was consumption choices uh, and then the firm, the, mono, the various oligopoly, monopoly, and offer. And then, given that I had this a bit um, love for math, I found it easy, I could understand very well. And they found these tools uh, very powerful to understand the world. So at the end, after having done economics, I said, well, I would like to do uh, this kind of things. And then I took the uh, major in economics. And uh, this was the reason why I decided to study economics. So my, I always say to my students that 
they should study economics, even though they want to be a businessman or to do something else, because economics allows them to understand the world. My, the, at the beginning, I mean, what I enjoyed more was studying economics and with what I learned, use it to understand the world. Also to understand, I wouldn't say the people, but the behavior of the people, okay? And I, that, that was a lot of fun. If you understand economics as very powerful tools, uh, think about game theory. And, uh, um, and so this was what motivated me to study economics. Then the reason why I became an economist was I like research, studying, and then I found the right field. Okay, but this was consequent. Then why I ended up in this kind of thing was a coincidence. In the beginning, my first paper, if you go in to, to, to some years back, you say 15, 20 years, uh, you find some paper, my first paper was on investment under uncertainty. And that was easy because I was in Italy. I had a very good professor, okay? Because before Sasha said that I took the PhD at Pompeo Fabra, but before that, I took the PhD at the University of Ancona, actually where I now teach, okay? But Bring uh, back. <laughs> from, Urbino, from Urbino, yeah, I had this professor, Enrico Santari, who was, uh, uh, I mean, the professor that um, at the beginning, I, I was a student, I worked with him, and so I said, look, I have to do this thesis for the Italian PhD, okay? What are you doing? Can you give me something interesting to study? Can you follow me? And then he said, oh yes, I mean, I'm doing this kind of things. So I studied investment under uncertainty, and then we ended up also to collaborate uh, also to write some good stuff. And, but then uh, while I was in Barcelona, I started liking, uh, um, it was a coincidence actually. I, I went to a seminar and there was a paper by Perotti uh, about the effect of the electoral systems on um, economic outcomes, so the distribution and things like that. And uh, then I met this uh, guy, Andrea Vindini, uh, my co-author over 20 years. Then I said, look, I mean, if electoral system have an effect on economic outcomes and taxes or distributions, they, they should be endogenous, okay? So economic, uh, they cannot be choice by, chosen by people by coincidence. And so we started working on this. And I found uh, that uh, I had ideas and I liked um, uh, this political economy stuff. And I ended up on this studying religion because uh, that was the process. I mean, uh, and I think uh, is there, I mean, I'm not good enough to be an economic historian because when, you go to economic history, then you have to be a good economist, but also uh, no history, no, politi no political science. You, know, you need a big background. So I'm not that good. I, I'm honest. I, 
Now you are the TV. I, I, I'm fascinated. <laughs> you know, in some papers you find some history. I mean, history stuff. I mean, Andrea is probably the, the person that likes history very much. I mean, I'm more uh, model oriented. Okay, but uh, that's it. Well, the important thing is that you did it. <laughs> <laughs> no matter what, uh, you, you're, you're becoming a, what's an economic historian can be classified as a jack of all trade. That's the, the right definition, right? That you, you need to know a little bit of everything. History, theory, empirical stuff. You need to have knowledge of anthropology, sociology, political science. You put all together. Um, and that's the beauty of it. I get like, it's very interdisciplinary. Um, it gets people from all the side. Um, you ended up writing a paper on economic history sooner or later. There's no escape there. <laughs> I'll try, I'll try. David. Love, love the paper. David, thank you so much. That was fascinating. Great to see you. And thanks for describing your paper in such lucid terms. Uh, wonderful. And uh, thanks for coming. And I hope we can have you again in the future. And I also hope to see you again face to face before too long. I'm happy to be to have been here with you I mean and uh, I hope this chat would be useful for your students for example and I think that the contribution that we should uh, my contribution is is also on the teaching level to convince people to study economics I mean for two reasons first because when you understand this is a lot of fun, and second, because allows you to understand the world and to do better other jobs. Thank you so much. Thank you, Davide. Thank you, Sasha, for running the interview. I uh, hope to see Davide maybe in the future for, for another interview, and I'll see you guys at the next episode. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.